This is History 2311, Lecture 2B, The Gilded Age. When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, the farmer is the man that feeds them all. If you'll only look and see, I think you will agree that the farmer is the man that feeds them all. The farmer is the man, the farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. Then they take him by the hand and they lead him from the land and the middleman's the one that gets it all. So the era from the 1870s to about the turn of the century, the 1900 in US history is often known as the Gilded Age. And this name comes from actually from the title of a novel written by Mark Twain uh, that was kind of a satire of corruption in political and economic life at the time. Gilded, uh, what is gilded? Gilded means something covered with a thin layer of gold, but, but not actually golden. It suggests that a glittering surface conceals something of little value. So the Gilded Age is actually one of very few eras uh, known by a critical name or a derogatory name. It's a Gilded Age, not a Golden Age. Something gilded looks gold, but is actually hollow, phony, deceptive. So when people talk about the Gilded Age, they are generally referring to the late 19th century as an era of phoniness, of corruption in politics, a time when the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Uh, the historian Vernon Parrington had another name for this era, which I also like a lot, called the Great Barbecue. Ten years ago, not many people were really familiar with this label, the Gilded Age, but it's actually come back into vogue because many people today argue that we are in a new Gilded Age. Certainly our own age is marked by great and growing inequality between rich and poor. And, and I think you could argue it's definitely an age where superficial luxuries mask corruption and the decay of democratic institutions. I'm going to talk in this video about the election of 1896 and try to use that as a way of talking about the Gilded Age and Gilded Age politics generally. Now you might say, hold on, uh, wasn't your last lecture about 1876? Are we like skipping 20 years here? The challenge of a course like this one is uh, always the curse of coverage or, or really the curse of thinking you have to cover everything. The truth is we can't possibly cover everything in United States history from 1865 to the present. We have to make choices. And so my goal in this class is not to mention, to simply mention every single person, place or thing in US history but instead to try with these lectures and, and hopefully in your discussions um, to explore interesting historical questions and to construct a narrative that is useful and meaningful, even if like all narratives, it is never gonna be comprehensive or complete. So yes, it is true, we are moving quickly here um, and, and different videos, different lectures that I give you are going to often zoom in on a specific issue or episode or year. And I will talk about some things and, and not get a chance to talk about other things. Um, that's one of the reasons you have your textbook, uh, chapter 16 of your textbook on capital and labor, chapter 17 on the West, chapter 18 on, I think it's called life in industrial America. These all offer a great discussion of some of the things that I'm maybe giving short shrift in the videos for this week. Things like uh, immigration, uh, gender, religion, and culture in late 19th century America, 
a little bit more on life in the Jim Crow South. So I encourage you, as always, to read the textbook and to think about how those things connect to our lectures and to make those connections in your tutorials on Zoom and in the forums on Teams. But as I say, in this lecture, I'm going to start by talking about the election of 1896, uh, because it was a very important election that set the United States on a certain path for years to come. But also, I want to use it to illustrate a number of things about the Gilded Age more broadly. Here is another cartoon by the artist Thomas Nast. When, you, when you're studying the late 19th century United States, uh, Thomas Nast is kind of the, the history teacher's best friend. So I think this cartoon is, it's called The Third Term Panic. It is about fears in 1874 that President Ulysses Grant was thinking of running for a third term as president. But its significance, and the reason I'm showing it to you, is that this, is, this cartoon is believed to be the first time that uh, an elephant, that the elephant was used as a symbol for the Republican Party. I'm not even sure what the elephant represents to Nast, why he chose an elephant to represent the Republicans. Some have said it's because the elephant is big and strong, but, but slow and, and unaware of its own strength. Others say it's because an elephant never forgets. And uh, for basically the whole second half of the 19th century, uh, the Republicans never let anyone forget that they were the party of the Union, the party that fought the Civil War, the party that defeated the rebel South. Um, at any rate, the, the elephant has become a symbol for the Republican Party. And, and this cartoon also has, uh, you see in the middle, it depicts the Democratic Party as a donkey. Uh, in this cartoon, it's, it's dressed as a, in a lion's skin. But uh, this is another symbol. This symbol had actually been around for some years before this cartoon, uh, the, the Democrats as a donkey. The idea, I think, was that uh, probably that the Democratic Party was dumb and stubborn as a donkey or a mule was the, was the joke being made there. Anyway, the cartoon itself is not super important, but those symbols, uh, donkey for Democrats, elephant for Republicans, they are still used today. You see them in cartoons today. And uh, I wanted to, to show this to sort of open up a conversation about, you know, we have these two parties in American history, these two institutions that are coming up on like 200 years old, how much relationship does the Republican Party uh, or the Democratic Party of today have, say, to the Republican or Democratic Party of the late 19th century? And the question that often comes up, and it came up when we were talking about Reconstruction, is when and how did the Democratic and Republican parties switch places? Uh, what I mean by that is that when we look at the two parties in the 19th century with our 21st century eyes, they often seem to us to be reversed. So in the 21st century, you know, we usually think of the Democratic Party as being the more liberal party, uh, arguably the more progressive party, certainly on questions like race. Uh, but when you look back at the 19th century, the Republican Party was clearly the more liberal, more progressive party on questions of race and slavery. It was the party of Lincoln. It was the party of the Freedmen's Bureau and Reconstruction. So we might think of the Republicans, the 19th century Republican Party, as being on what we would call the political left, while the Democratic Party in the 19th century seems like the more conservative party, the one on the political right. I mean, above all, it was the party of white supremacy, the party of the former Confederacy, the party of the Ku Klux Klan, and so on. So did the two parties switch places? 
Well, I'm going to say what pretty much every historian says, which is it's a little more complicated than that. Part of what I want you to understand is that simply saying left and right, this whole idea that there's a, a single spectrum on which all political divides can be aligned, uh, was questionable in the 19th century. Political divides were regional and cultural and class and interest-based. But this idea, so this idea that you could put them all on a spectrum and call one group left and one group right, um, it, it doesn't really hold true for American politics in the 19th century. And in fact, Americans didn't really use the language uh, of the political spectrum of left wing and right wing before around the middle of the 20th century. So I try to avoid talking about left wing and right wing politics in the United States before around the 1930s or 40s. But it is certainly true that there has been a shift or multiple shifts in the identity and platforms of the two major parties. And here you see uh, two slogans from the 19th century. In the late 19th century, the Democratic uh, Party quite plainly says, this is a white man's country, let white man rule. And uh, in this era, the Democrats were definitely the party of white supremacy. Uh, they thought of themselves as the party of the little guy, the party of the common man, but that common man was uh, definitely a white man and a native born American man at that, never an African American, never an immigrant. The Republicans, uh, by contrast, were the party of Lincoln and Reconstruction, the party that abolished slavery. And with that, they won the votes and loyalty of African Americans for at least as long as African Americans were allowed to vote. But the Republicans were also always the party of big business, of Northern industry. And to their minds, this was not a contradiction. Uh, Lincoln in 1860 would have told you, slavery is bad for business. I am for free men and I'm also for free industry. Does that put them on the right or on the left? You see the, the, the inadequacy of the political spectrum to describe uh, the politics of this era. So a full answer to the question, did the two parties switch places? It's going to take, you know, it's going to take the rest of the term, but we'll start that discussion today. The meta point I want to make about all this is that parties change. And more than that, uh, political categories change. The ways that people divide themselves up politically, the tribes they form, the questions on which they divide themselves, these things are not unchanging across time. So you can't just look at the past and say, these were the good guys. These are the people I agree with now. And these guys over here were the bad guys. Understanding the politics of the late 19th century or any historical era different from our own means putting ourselves in a different mindset using different frames of reference. So I'm gonna try and drill down and explain that more today. And, and, and as I do, it might actually give you some tools to think about contemporary politics. Let's return to the election of 1896. And we'll start at the level of parties and personalities. 90% uh, of election coverage never gets beyond the level of parties and personalities. Who are the candidates? Who's going to win the nomination? Who's ahead in the polls? This kind of superficial uh, horse race coverage that, that is how we usually talk about elections. It is superficial, but it's a good place to start. The outgoing president in 1896 was Grover Cleveland. And Cleveland uh, was actually the first Democrat to be elected president since before the Civil War. And he did so, he won um, in 1884 by being basically as much like a Republican as it was possible for a Democrat to be. 
So he was a pro-business conservative. He was very laissez-faire. He supported banking. He supported railroad interests, just like the Republicans. The only big difference between uh, the Cleveland and the Republicans is that Cleveland was against the tariff. When you study 19th century history, uh, whether it's U.S. history, Canadian history, it seems like they're always fighting about tariffs. Why were tariffs so important? I mean, I guess they're economically, they are important, but really I think it's less that they were important and more that the two parties agreed about everything else. So if you have two pro-business parties, uh, one's dominated by rich Northerners, one's dominated by rich Southerners, but they both accept white supremacy, they both want westward expansion, they're going to they're gonna argue about the one difference they do have, uh, which in this case was the tariffs. And this is a sign, I think, or, or, or an example of how elections offer us choice, but they also contain and limit our choices, especially in a country like the United States uh, with a strong two-party system. But at any rate, Cleveland was not running for president again in 1896. The Republicans nominated William McKinley as their candidate. McKinley was the governor of Ohio. Uh, he was a Civil War veteran. Actually, the Republicans nominated Union Army Civil War veterans in every election from 1868 to 1900. McKinley was pro-business. He was pro-tariff, so there's one difference from Cleveland. He was sober and serious and competent. Uh, he was not regarded as a great speech maker or a very enthusiastic campaigner. In fact, in 1896, he, he famously conducted what was called the front porch campaign. He didn't travel all over the country. He just stayed home in Ohio and gave speeches from his front porch. Now the wild card in this election was a new party called the People's Party or the Populists. And the People's Party had only been created a few years before in 1892. Uh, the populist movement really grew out of unrest and unhappiness among farmers in the South and the West. I already talked last week about you know, how tough it was for farmers in the South where sharecropping locked millions, uh, both white and black, into a kind of poverty and servitude. But farmers in the West were also suffering. And from their point of view, uh, as I was saying a minute ago, the Republicans were the party of rich Northerners and the Democrats were the party of rich Southerners. And big business was getting bigger and the rich were getting richer, but there was no political voice, they said, for farmers or the working class. So farmers started to organize politically in the 1870s and the 1880s in a whole bunch of organizations, uh, like the Farmers Alliance, they had little parties like the Anti-Monopoly Party and the Greenback Party. And in 1892, they came together in Omaha, Nebraska, so out west, it made sense given the regional appeal of this party, they came together to form the People's Party or the Populists. Third parties like this were actually very common in the late 19th century, but they rarely got very far. The two existing parties were, and still are, very good at absorbing and co-opting dissent. But the People's Party brought together, uh, or hoped to bring together, a bunch of these little movements. Uh, farmers alliances, including both the white farmers and also the colored farmers alliance. Uh, urban workers in the labor movement, like the Knights of Labor and the American Federation of Labor. Uh, they appealed, uh, they supported prohibition, so they appealed to the middle class anti-alcohol crusaders of the Prohibition Party. They also reached out to women. They supported women's suffrage and women organizers, which, which was a growing movement at this time. 
And there's a whole bunch of other kind of 19th century political movements, Christian socialists, single taxers, uh, that they, they tried to pull together into a big tent. Despite being brand new, the populists did surprisingly well in the elections of 1892 and also the midterms of 1894. The populist candidate for president in 1892 was James Weaver, and he got more than a million votes. Uh, if you look at this map showing the populist share of that vote, you can really see the regional nature of their appeal. Most of their success came in the Trans-Mississippi West and to slightly lesser extent in the South. In the midterm elections of 1894, they did even better. They elected a governor, a bunch of congressmen, a bunch of senators, and they really seemed to have momentum on their side. And the populists were convinced, or hopeful at least, that 1896 was going to be their year. In July of 1896, the Democrats held their national convention. Going into the convention, most people thought that the Democrat candidate for president was going to be a Missouri congressman named Richard Bland, great name, Bland. Uh, but in fact, a young Nebraska congressman named William Jennings Bryan gave an electrifying speech at this convention. It was called the Cross of Gold speech. And it kind of crystallized all of the farmers' grievances uh, and, uh, and hopes and ideas. Um, and it, this was an amazing speech and it actually said just about everything that the populists wanted to hear. Brian was uh, devoutly religious. I mean, he was practically a preacher and, and his speech put the issues of the populists and the Democrats into powerful biblical language. He said, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns, uh, referring to Christ's crucifixion. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. I'll talk in a minute about what the cross of gold, what this reference to gold meant. But for now, I just wanna say that when the populists held their own convention later that summer, they knew that Brian had stolen their thunder. He had done such a good job of summing up their issues and ideas. And they had long arguments about whether Brian was in fact a real populist. And in the end, the populists decided to also nominate Brian for president and simply nominate their own candidate, Tom Watson, for vice president. So you know you've given a good speech when a different party decides to nominate you as their candidate also. So those are the personalities and uh, the parties and the campaigns in 1896. And as I say, most political coverage doesn't really go much beyond that. Who are the candidates? Who has momentum? What do the polls say? Uh, you know, we need to get better at talking about politics. When people complain about the media and political coverage today, they always say, they really wanna hear about the issues, right? So let's look at the issues. What are the issues? The issues are what the parties and the candidate say the election is about. Really, they are what the parties disagree about or what they tacitly agree to disagree about. And the big issue in the election of 1896 was the money question. This is gonna get a little bit technical, but I think it is worth spelling out. I said last time that money is like the water for fish, like the medium in which American history swims, but, but people don't talk about it or see its, in, its impact. So today I wanna talk about money and how it worked in 19th century America. And you know, also I, I don't know about you, but I just like knowing how things work. So I, I feel like this is worth spending a little time on. After the Civil War, the US dollar was tied to the gold standard. What that means is the price of gold was fixed at a set amount, say, $20 per ounce. And 
every US dollar in circulation had to be backed by a, an equivalent amount of gold, actual physical gold in the US government's possession. What this meant is that the US government was always going to be good for its debts. It could pay them off in gold. Gold would ensure that the dollar was always worth what the government said it was worth. And the government couldn't print more money unless they acquired more gold. So this limited the amount of money, the, the total number of dollars in circulation. But as I was saying last time, the economy grew really rapidly in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. The population was increasing, industrial production was increasing, you had more people, you had more workers, more wages, you had more stuff being produced, bought and sold. But the money supply, the actual total amount of dollars remained restricted because it was tied to the gold standard. And this caused what is known as deflation. Prices and wages went down. And that might sound weird to you, but if you think about it, it makes sense. You're probably more familiar with inflation. Inflation is what we call it when the value of a dollar goes down. And every year uh, in our lives, you know, things get a little bit more expensive every year. Every year, your dollar buys a little bit less stuff. So we have to raise wages and, and hopefully raise the minimum wage every year, uh, or else it won't keep up with inflation. But in the late 19th century, there was more stuff to buy every year, more people earning money, more wages to pay, but not more money to do it with. So money itself was increasing in value relative to material goods. And that meant that a dollar was worth more, which meant that wages and prices were going down. Now, if I was in class with you right now, I would definitely stop to see if this makes sense or maybe uh, ask an economic student if I had explained all that right. As I said a moment ago, the populists had absorbed uh, an earlier political party, the Greenback Party, and the populists supported what was called the Greenback Movement. Greenback was uh, just a nickname for the US dollar because uh, they are green. At the time, they were only green on one side, hence Greenback. And so people in the Greenback Movement, including the populists said, we need more money, so let's print more money. And this may sound naive, but there was an economic logic to it. The idea was that putting more money in circulation, printing more dollar bills would produce inflation. It would make each individual dollar worth less, and this would force prices and wages to rise. And here is where we start to see how the different factions in US politics were defined by their relationship to money and the money question, because who, who is inflation good for? Who, do, who does it help uh, when the value of the dollar goes down? Well, inflation is good for people who owe a lot of money. Let's say you owe the bank $10,000. If the absolute value of $10,000 goes down, then even though you still owe $10,000, the real value of your debt has decreased. And if your wages go up, it becomes easier for you to pay this debt back. So who almost always owes somebody else money? Well, there are lots of answers to that question, but one of them is farmers. Farming is a job where you always have big upfront costs. You need equipment, you need seed, above all, you need land, right? But then you only get paid at harvest time. Depending on what you grow, that might be only once per year. So farmers are almost always in debt. 
It's like the song I played at the beginning of this lecture says the farmer is the man who lives on credit till the fall. In other words, who is in debt until harvest time at the fall. And the idea of the greenback movement, which the populists embraced, was that printing more money, inflating the currency, would make it easier for farmers to pay off their debts. It would also raise the prices at which they could sell their crops. Prices were, as I said, going down in the 19th century, and crop prices in particular were really low. And it seemed like the more farmers grew, the more productive they got, the lower the prices they could get for their crops became. The Republicans, on the other hand, like McKinley, were staunch defenders of the gold standard. They said, this greenback plan is crazy. It will destroy the value of the dollar. And uh, during the Civil War, the Union, um, the North, and especially the Confederacy, the South, had, had both gone deep into debt, and they had both printed lots of money to meet their debts, uh, so that by the end of the war, there had been so much inflation that the dollar was nearly worthless. And Republicans in 1896 insisted that, that gold was the only honest currency. They said, abandoning the gold standard will destroy business confidence. It will, it will prevent recovery from the depression by discouraging capitalists from investing. Once again, we see that people's politics are shaped by their material interests. Because if inflation or a loose money supply is good for people who owe money, a restricted money supply, like the one created by the gold standard, is good for people who loan money or who invest money, like bankers and capitalists. And bankers and capitalists were, then and now, staunch supporters of the Republican Party. I mean, there's a way in which the two parties have not switched places. So you've got the Republicans on the one side defending the gold standard. Then you've got the populists saying, let's get off the gold standard and just print more money. And then Williams Jennings Bryan, the Democratic candidate, found a middle position. He said the dollar should be linked to gold and silver. And they called this bimetallism, meaning two metals, uh, which was a kind of middle position between the gold standard and the greenback movement. In the 19th century, the United States had lots of silver. There was lots of silver still in the ground in the Western states. And so Bryan said the US could mine lots of silver and thus increase the dollar supply, but without going all the way to paper money. It's hard to explain how intensely Americans fought about this money question in 1896. I know it seems sort of technical and arcane, but you know, sometimes one issue uh, becomes a proxy for everything else. Think of Trump's wall, think of Obamacare. Sometimes one issue uh, becomes a place where all these other political struggles, economic differences, cultural differences get collapsed into one thing and everybody makes that the, the territory over which they fight. There's this theory that's been going around for, for years now uh, that The Wizard of Oz, uh, which was uh, originally published as a novel by Frank Baum in 1900 and then became a famous film in 1939. There's this theory that The Wizard of Oz was actually a kind of allegory or metaphor about the money question. Um, and, and the theory says that each of the characters represents some aspect of American politics in this era. The scarecrow represented the American farmer um, and the tin man represented the industrial laborer. And uh, the lion, the cowardly lion actually represented William Jennings Bryan himself. 
And uh, the theory says that, you know, that, that the, the yellow brick road, they're told to follow the yellow brick road, uh, actually represents the gold standard. Dorothy's ruby slippers, in the original book, they are silver slippers. And, and so the idea is that silver, Dorothy learns that she has the power to defeat uh, the wicked witch of the West, who maybe represents the West all along. I don't actually believe the Wizard of Oz theory. Uh, Frank Baum, who wrote the Wizard of Oz, wrote like 20 sequels to it. And he never once said that it was an allegory for the money question. But I like this story. I like this Oz story because it lets us know that, that we've really left rational economic calculations behind and entered a realm of what magical symbolism. Because here's the thing, the issues are not the issues. What I mean to say is that the issues that get debated in a political uh, election are, are only the tip of the iceberg like Trump's wall, like Obamacare, they are, they stand in for all sorts of other debates and hopes and fears and divides and fissures that do not get talked about or, or that only get talked about obliquely. President Richard Nixon had a political advisor named Kevin Phillips, who famously said in 1968, the whole secret of politics is knowing who hates who. When you read an election, you can't just look at what people say. You have to look at what they don't say, what they can't say, what they almost say, uh, what each side hopes and fears and imagines, and as Philip says, who each side hates. You have to look at images and symbols. Uh, and when I say images and symbols, I mean the metaphors that people use, but I also mean literally images. So I like to talk about different kinds of primary sources. Here's another primary source, a cartoon showing the bosses of the Senate. And what we see here is that the Senate, uh, the Senate is dominated by these trusts, by these living bags of money, these giant rich capitalists, the steel trust, the copper trust, the oil trust. Trust was just the 19th century word for a monopoly, for a big, for a really large business that controlled the market. So what this cartoon is saying, and it's an idea that is still relevant today, is that the people's government is in fact dominated by these giant trusts, these giant corporations. And you can see in the back of the Senate hall, the people's entrance to the Senate is closed while this parade of, of living bags of money uh, looms over the puny senators. The populists and also the Bryan Democrats seized on the money question as an expression of their fears. It wasn't just about money. It was, it was about everything they sort of feared and hated about what America was becoming. Uh, your primary sources for this week included the Omaha platform of the People's Party. And in that platform, they populists talk, they say the nation has been brought to the verge of moral, political, and material ruin. The fruits of the toil of millions are being stolen to build up colossal fortunes for a few. And they say that those who possess those fortunes despise the Republic and endanger liberty. Nobody in the 1890s, nobody had ever been as rich as someone like John Rockefeller, the head of Standard Oil, or Andrew Carnegie, the head of US Steel. No one had ever been as rich as those men before. No company had ever been as large as those companies. And, and the question that haunted the populists and the Bryan Democrats was, were fortunes on that scale even compatible with democracy? The populists saw themselves as the last defenders 
of an older vision of America, a Jeffersonian vision of America as, as a commonwealth of, of small farmers and producers. They saw their fight as the last stand against big business, industry, corporate power. And this is one reason that the election of 1896 is such a watershed, because in, in, in a lot of ways, this was the last election where the question, are corporations evil? Is big business compatible with democracy? Uh, was really on the table, at least for, for many, many years. Talking about images, one of the most common images of big business in these years was an octopus. Uh, all over 19th century politics, you see this kind of cartoon uh, where people feared that big business was a monster with long tentacles. This, this, this cartoon is of the standard oil octopus reaching out, taking over government, crushing liberty. This image of the octopus is actually a way of representing politics that has almost never gone out of style. Here, here's a bunch more 19th century octopuses, the, the railroad monopoly as an octopus, Standard Oil once again, in the top right, the subway monopoly. Yeah, well, that's a pretty freaky looking octopus, but it's some kind of tentacled monster. Now, Republicans had their own metaphors and images too. In particular, the Republican Party wrapped itself in the flag. They literally distributed thousands of American flags and flag buttons. They put the flag on everything. They kind of captured the flag symbolically so thoroughly that Democrats and populists somehow seemed unpatriotic. And the Republicans always presented McKinley as reliable, responsible, a guardian of order. Uh, meanwhile, they presented uh, Brian as a kind of crazy radical, a hick and a bigot. You see in this cartoon, he's, he's uh, like turning a crank in his head and just spewing out talk and crazy speeches. Um, they also played on old stereotypes about the South because, of course, the Democratic Party was still thought of as the party of the South. And so the Republicans said that voting for Brian was like voting for the old slave confederacy if it was controlled by socialists. Now, I still haven't shed much light on the question, when and how did the two parties switch places? Looking at the Gilded Age from today, this is one of the hardest things to get our heads around, who the two parties represented and how that has changed over the last 150 years. One thing I want you to keep in mind uh, in this course about US politics is the power of the two-party system. For almost all of American history, there have been two and only two major parties. And why, why no third party in the United States? There's a, there's a bunch of reasons. Structurally, uh, kind of winner-take-all electoral system or a first-past-the-post system does tend to support two-party systems. And that tendency is magnified in the United States, where the whole country elects the president, as opposed to a parliamentary system like Canada, where we actually only vote for uh, the, the representative in our own riding. Also, the, the, the sheer size of the United States and the immense expense of competing in a US election, the amount of money it takes to run for president, makes it very hard to establish viable third parties. When third parties do pop up in US history, they tend to be short-lived. I always quote the historian Richard Hofstetter who said, third parties are like bumblebees. They sting once and then die. But the other thing I want you to remember, maybe the key point of this entire lecture is that even though the two parties are very powerful, very durable, they've been around for a long time, what each one stands for is not fixed. Partisan divides are really strong today, so this, this may be hard to accept, but what it means to be a Republican, what it means to be a Democrat, has never been nailed down. 
In a two-party winner-take-all system, all parties are essentially coalitions. Every election is actually a contest to stitch together some kind of an alliance that's going to add up to, you know, 51% of the electoral vote. And historically, uh, the two parties in the US have actually avoided articulating clear policy differences. Uh, they actually often try to blur their differences in order to win voters in the middle. Now, I'm not saying that the two parties are the same. They definitely are not. But I'm saying the two parties are not static. They are always shifting. They are always circling one another, trying to steal groups from each other, trying to change the electoral map. Now, the map of who supported each party, it's, it's, not, it's not a literal map. I've put a bunch of terms on this map, but I put them on a map because politics in the 19th century was extremely regional. After the Civil War, the Republicans were the party of Northern business and the Democrats were the party of Southern agrarian wealth. So both parties were dominated by rich men, but by different groups of rich men. Let me try to explain this map. The Republicans got their money from northern industry, big business railroads, but they also uh, had a lot of votes from native born white workers. There was a progressive reform element to the Republican Party, and they had won the loyalty and the votes of black farmers in the South, at least for as long as, as African Americans could vote in the South. The Democrats, by contrast, were essentially funded by agrarian wealth, by the old planter elites, and they had the strong loyalty of white farmers in the South. They also picked up votes from immigrants in the North, like Irish immigrants and German immigrants, who found themselves shut out of the Republican Party, which was dominated by native-born Americans, uh, and so found in the Democratic Party a, a road to political involvement and political power. But in 1896, the populists, the new People's Party, were trying to change the map. And they knew they had a good chance of winning votes from the white farmers in the South and the West. Their dream, their goal, was to also win some votes from Northern workers and Black farmers too. And the populists understood that both the Republicans and the Democrats used racial divides uh, and also the memory of the Civil War to win votes. The populist leader, Tom Watson, pointed out this divide and conquer strategy in 1892. He said, you, speaking to black and white farmers, he said, you are kept apart and made to hate each other, not seeing that that hatred is what enslaves you both, that that, that race antagonism actually allows wealthy elites to rob you both. And the Southern populists were trying to thread a certain needle or walk a difficult tightrope because they were reaching out to black voters on economic issues, but they didn't want to upset white voters with any talk of real social equality or integration. Walking that tightrope got a whole lot harder after the populists backed Bryan and, and kind of half merged with the Democrats because African-Americans knew that the Democratic Party was the party of the white South, the party of lynching, the party of the KKK. The tragedy of Tom Watson is that this guy who in 1892 had seen the way racism worked to keep both poor whites and poor blacks down and had called this out and called for cross racial solidarity Later in his career, Watson would turn into the very kind of racist Southern Democrat that he started his career fighting. And the sad irony is that the more racist he got, the more political success he achieved. These racial divides are hard to cross. 
wealthy planters who controlled the Democratic Party used racism and Jim Crow segregation to prevent any kind of coalition between poor whites and poor black farmers and sharecroppers. And Republican business interests in the North did much the same thing using racial or ethnic divides to prevent any kind of alliance between immigrant workers and native born white workers. The populists hoped that they could bridge those divides and change the map by bringing workers and farmers together uh, in one party. Now, I know this map is now a crazy mess. That's actually the point, is that it's a crazy mess. I, I, I want you to see that how complicated these, these competing factions were. Don't think of the two parties as representing two fixed points, certainly not two fixed points on a single political spectrum. Instead, I want you to think of the two parties as like jiggly blobs of jelly that kind of reach out to try and absorb one group or another. And as they do, they sort of gradually shift position around this electoral map. These blobs shift and move, they're not nailed down. And as our class goes on, we'll talk about other key elections and key moments when the meaning of the two parties shifted, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives leaving the Republican Party in 1912, or the Democrats embracing civil rights for African-Americans in the 1960s and uh, defenders of white supremacy, the so-called Dixiecrats splitting from the party and eventually finding their way into the Republicans. This has been going on for a long time. Back before the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked a very similar question. He was asked whether the two parties of his day had switched places. This would have been, I guess, the Democrats and the Whigs, the old two-party system. And Abe Lincoln, he loved a good folksy anecdote. So he told a story about one time seeing two drunk men in a fight. He said they were wrestling, rolling around the floor of a bar room. Each one was really too drunk to do much damage to the other. And at the end of the fight, all they had achieved was that each one had wrestled out of his own coat and into the other guy's coat. And Lincoln said, the two parties are sort of like these two drunks and they wrestled into each other's coats. There's one more thing you have to do if you want to understand an American election, and that is to follow the money. Uh, I said last time that money is like the water in which this whole story swims. McKinley's chief campaign strategist in 1896 was a, a U.S. senator, very wealthy man named Mark Hanna, and he famously said, there are two things that are important in politics. One is money, and I can't remember what the other one is. Now, money doesn't always win. The first time I, I taught this course was about five years ago. Uh, and in January 2016, giving this lecture, I showed this graph uh, that showed which presidential candidates had raised the most money uh, as of the end of 2015 and, and predicted based on this graph that the next president of the United States would clearly either be Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton. So this is, you know, another example, historians should not make predictions. Nevertheless, it is like the house at a casino. Over time, money wins more often than it loses. This is a chart showing presidential campaign spending from 1960 to 2012. And, and the three elections that are circled are the only ones in which the candidate spending more money did not win. So money does win more often than it loses. If we go back to my extremely simple and easy to understand map of the election of 1896, you see that I have identified for the Republicans and the Democrats, the core interests that fund them. In other words, where they get their money from. The Republican Party in the 1890s was funded by 
big business, by Northern industry, by the railroads, by banks. The Democratic Party in this era was primarily funded by the old planter elites, by agrarian wealth. But when the Democrats nominated Bryan, a lot of that money dried up. A lot of these rich planters were not big fans of Bryan. Uh, so the Democrats had less money going into the election while the Republican money machine went into overdrive. And the election of 1896 was the most expensive campaign to date. Um, and if you adjust for inflation, as this graph does, you see that it's, it's out of all, it's completely off the scale compared to just about every other election through the 20th century. And most of that spending was the Republicans. The Republicans outspent the Democrats and the populists something like 10 to 1. McKinley stayed home and led a front porch campaign, but the Republican Party, Mark Hanna, created a powerful national political machine. He flooded the country with pamphlets, posters, campaign buttons, and he paid orators to crisscross the United States, giving speeches on McKinley's behalf, selling McKinley like a patent medicine. So what was the result? Well, voter turnout would never again be as high. In 1896, something like 90% of eligible voters in some states voted. Now, eligible voters, of course, means men and primarily white men. Voter turnout in, in the 2020 election, the one we just had, was around 66%. And that itself was a record. Uh, it was the highest since 1896, actually. Uh, for most of the intervening years, um, electoral participation is usually down around 50%. So McKinley and the Republicans won. Bryan and the Democrats carried the South and the West as expected, but McKinley captured the Northeast and the Midwest. And that's where, that's where all the electoral college votes are. In, in the popular vote, it was fairly close, but in the electoral college, the McKinley's victory was quite lopsided. One way of interpreting these results is that racial and sectional divides trumped class interests. So once again, the left-right spectrum was not what drove American politics in these years. Workers in the North and the Midwest did not join the populists or the Democrats in large numbers. African-Americans in the South did not leave the Republicans for the populists. Of course, by 1896, Black voting rights had eroded so much that few Blacks could vote, but even those who still could looked at the Democratic populist ticket and, you know, the Democratic populists, they looked a lot like those Democrats that had been terrorizing them for years. So they didn't turn to the populists. In the same way, that ethnic divide between uh, native-born white workers and immigrant workers kept Northern labor from uniting behind the populists. So William McKinley was elected and Republicans actually dominated US politics for the next 30 years. The gold standard was preserved and the legitimacy of big business was accepted by most Americans, like it or not. William Jennings Bryan ran for president three more times, but he actually did less well each time. And the populists, the People's Party, were essentially over as a political movement. Their ideas weren't gone. Uh, the populist crusade had failed, but that crusade would alter the DNA of the parties who defeated them. Many of the reforms that the populists had called for, things like a graduated income tax, an eight-hour workday, antitrust legislation. Many of these things would actually be achieved by the other parties in the years to come. We'll talk about that a little more next week when we talk about the progressives. One last cartoon for you. This one is called Swallowed. And what we see here is William Jennings Bryan depicted as a populist snake 
swallowing the Democratic Party. So this cartoon was a warning to Democrats that Brian and the populists were going to absorb them. But you could ask, you know, who is swallowing who? From the point of view of the populists, the exact opposite had happened, that Brian and the Democrats had swallowed the populist movement. The American two-party system is very good at co-opting dissent, at absorbing groups and issues and challenges. And this is what the two parties do when challenged, is they swallow their opposition. But you are what you eat, right? When a party co-opts dissent by absorbing a voting bloc, that party itself gets changed. And as I said before, the two parties in America are very resilient, but what they stand for is not nailed down. And it often happens that they go after a voting block and in so doing, they become that voting block. In recent history, you can see this in the way uh, the Tea Party and then Donald Trump took over and transformed the Republican Party. I love this picture of Donald Trump and Mitt Romney taken right after Trump's victory in 2016. Establishment Republicans like Romney thought that Trump would be useful to them. They thought that they could swallow him, that they could absorb the political movement he represented, that they could harness his popularity for votes without transforming who they were. But the, the subsequent four years, I think, would show very differently. Who swallowed who? Thanks for watching. Well, a farmer is the man, farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. And his pants are wearing thin, his condition, it's a sin, he's forgot that he's the man that feeds them all.